Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed to our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and it's good to be here. It's always a joy to be with you back at Ironworks. I hope that there is some opportunity for fellowship between the the churches that we, my wife and I, are now involved in Ironworks and also Calvary and Willow Grove. You know, we were able to invite folks at Calvary to take part in the Grace Seminar that you held, and some folks did. Uh, go to that, but we should extend an invitation to you for certain events that we hold. This might be going from the sublime to the ridiculous, but we're holding a movie night in March to discuss Barbie. So we may want to invite you to that stimulating discussion about all the worldview issues that come out of that film. But enough said about that. I want to turn your attention to the words that uh, have been read for you by Patty in the very end of Paul's second letter to Timothy. And as you turn there, I realize that you should never use really big words in a sermon unless you explain what what they mean. And then it's okay, and you can have some some fun with them. So here's one to get us into at least one little issue in this letter. Pseudepigrapha. Something you were just waiting to use today, isn't it? That is a word used to name a writing that is fake, not what it claims to be no less an authority than Wikipedia, considers 2 Timothy as, quote, probably not authentic, 
And then it references a fairly well-known biblical scholar who is sure that Paul's second letter to Timothy is a good example of pseudepigrapha. Well, the only reason I'm mentioning this right now is that the material before us suggests something important about who wrote this letter. There's a lot of mundane stuff in here, right? Incidentals, we might call it. The commentator Gordon Fee considers all this and comes to this conclusion. A pseudepigrapher who created this, especially in light of the other concerns of these letters, would have been an extraordinary genius. Exactly right. See what he's saying. Second Timothy has a genuine personal feel to it, an inescapable ring of authenticity. You can't make this stuff up, you would say. It would take a much greater leap of faith to believe that Second Timothy is pseudepigraphal than to believe it really was written by Paul. And so far as we know, the last words written by the great apostle, which makes them all the more precious and moving. Now, Ironworks, you're thinking about missions, especially this week, and there are some missions themes, actually a lot of them, in this passage. I'll just touch on some of the themes that you could say are missional. First of all, betrayal in mission. The name Demas appears in Paul's letter to Philemon as a fellow laborer of Paul, which sounds great. In Colossians, he's just a person mentioned, nothing about his worth. But here, he's someone who abandoned Paul for love of this present evil age. Now, that's a progression that is a scary downward spiral of spiritual decline ending, as far as we know, in this terrible thing, apostasy. That's turning away from the faith, renouncing it, renouncing Jesus. Sometimes someone on a missions team may do that. And for those who are left, it's like a a punch in the gut. Another theme, we call this second chances in mission. The name Mark should jump off the page at us. This is the man who left Paul and Barnabas on the second missionary journey, and then that was the cause of such a dispute between Paul and Barnabas that they divided, went their separate ways, because Paul couldn't handle Mark being on the team anymore. And now, at the very end, Mark shows up. And for Paul, he's very useful to me in ministry. This is a story of a fall, but a recovery. And while betrayal can demoralize us in mission, restoration like this lifts everybody's spirits. That there is a second chance, there is redemption. Then a third theme, the importance of stuff. How about creature comforts? The stuff that we own that we take pleasure in. 
This would be a healthy antidote to thinking that mission involves a continual act of self-denial. I'm thinking of the books, the parchments, and the cloak. Now, who knows what these writings were? Some people say that they probably had to do with Paul's legal defense, so that they were stuffy legal documents. I don't really like that idea at all. I don't like that coming up here. I much prefer it to be maybe copies of the Word of God, maybe letters from others, maybe, maybe there was a letter from Peter in here. Maybe the letter to the Hebrews were in these books and parchments that Paul wanted. Maybe it's some of his own writings. But the point is, Paul knew the pleasures of the mind, written words as the doorway to the life of the mind, and the books and the parchments would help him in prison. And then the cloak. This is really fascinating. A commentator describes it this way. The cloak was a great circular ring-like garment. It had a hole for a person's head in the middle, and it covered a man like a little tent right down to the ground. It was a garment for the winter, and no doubt Paul was feeling his Roman prison cold. On the Tanzania trip, I'm told that Kelly lost her luggage. Making up for the stuff you need is a part of mission, and it's important. Yet another theme, mission is not for the naive. Paul would seem to endorse the idea that some people are not safe. Someone named Alexander, who was a coppersmith, did Paul great harm. Who, who cares about what harm that might be? We're not going to speculate. But the point is, we shouldn't be naive. Some people are not going to be won over by Christian grace. They will stab us in the back or perhaps prey upon others as predators. Paul doesn't want Timothy to walk into a trap set by Alexander the coppersmith or someone like him. It's not a character quality to be so naive that we let toxic, abusive people into the circle of Christ's mission. So get rid of them is pretty much what Paul is saying here. And then, to try to bind it all together, what I've said so far should give us the flavor of what's going on in this passage. There are so many pathways you could explore. But we don't want to let all of these diverse themes distract us from seeing something that does bind it all together. The random thoughts and people mentioned by Paul, they all show how closely he had shared life with Timothy. What can bind the passage together are the words, do your best to come to me soon and come before winter. Paul was with Timothy the same way he was with the Corinthians, writing to them, our heart is wide open. 
And Timothy had responded by opening his heart to Paul. Paul poured his life into Timothy, but he also received from Timothy, who poured his life back into Paul. And that tells us something about how people do mission in friendship. So this is a picture of the special bond shared by those who are partners in the ministry of the gospel. It's a confirmation as well that it's not good for anyone to be alone. Of course, marriage is an answer to that need, but friendship is too. Not everybody is called to be married, but we are all called to friendship. We are meant to be in a community for fellowship. The preacher in Ecclesiastes writes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again. And if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. So using that to sum up this passage, here's the main message for you this morning. Nurture friends in gospel mission and see Jesus stand with you in your greatest need. One thing that really jumps out at you in this passage is the presence of friends. And this glimpse into Paul, the relational. Now, Paul was an intellectual and a theological giant. I love the way, I guess this is my favorite theologian, Gerhardus Voss, describes him. Quote, Paul had been the first to grasp with his master mind the single items of eschatological belief scattered throughout Scripture and to weave them into a compact, well-rounded system so coherent that after speaking after the manner of man, it became next to impossible for any of the precious texture henceforth to be lost. What he's saying is if you add up all of the writings of Paul that we have, there is a system about the glory of the powers of the coming age under the reign of Jesus Christ that is coherent and powerful and as though it's woven together as a great tapestry without a single thread missing or out of place. That's Paul. We are tempted to think that in any relationship Paul had, such as the friendship between Paul and Timothy, it would have been one-sided. That Timothy would be the one receiving and Paul the one always giving. But Paul received from people. When he began the monumental letter to the Romans, he told them he wanted to visit them. He, He wrote, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That's what I would expect. 
Paul would visit the Roman Christians and he would be giving to them. But then he quickly makes it clear that the relationship would not be one way. And he writes, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. There's another thing about Paul that can be missed. It comes out in the letter, the second letter to the Corinthians. We think that missionaries like Paul would be so self-sacrificing that no price would be too great to pay if there would be an open door for the gospel and some great advance or achievement that could be made. But did you ever think about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 2 and verse 12? He wrote, Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. You realize what he's saying? Here's the mighty apostle. He lands in Troas. He sees an open door for the gospel. But he was deeply concerned because Titus was not there as he expected him to be. I would have expected Paul to write, well, I sucked it up, and I went through that open door, and I have these great things to report to you about my mission there in Troas. But he didn't do that. He said, I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Have you ever heard a story of a missions hero who had a choice between a wide open door for fruitful gospel work and passed it by because he felt so empty and needed his friends? We value productivity, don't we, in ministry more than we would admit. Sometimes it can almost seem like a business. We have a hard time accounting for the kind of choice Paul made when he turned away from an open door for ministry because of the absence of Titus that he felt so strongly. Now, Paul's relationship with Timothy was not one-sided. He began the letter writing, I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I have to ask myself, do I have people in my life, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that I've gotten to know and have such warm feelings about that it brings tears to my eyes. They would trickle down my cheeks. Do I have friendships in Christ that fill me with joy? Have I told a Christian friend, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy? The scripture compels us to ask these questions, not to make us feel guilty, I don't think that's the point, but to open this doorway of fellowship that we would walk through to actually act out this kind of closeness with people that is presented to us as the supper of the Lord, as a gift to enter into. Now, <clears throat> Just before our passage, 
that Patty read, Paul had reached this eloquent height. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And in the words that follow, he's descending from those heights to talk with Timothy about what he needs. And we heard how he needs Timothy to bring him some stuff that will help him in prison. Most of all, he needs Timothy himself. Do your best to come to me soon. Do your best to come before winter. It was, you could call it, tactical travel. I read that the Mediterranean was closed to shipping from November to March. If he was going to get there, he had to leave quickly. But it's also the life of the soul that Paul knows and understands and shares with Timothy. There's a bit of the dark night of the soul that Paul's opening up, the winter of the soul. It's bad enough in prison now. It will be all the worse when winter sets in. If I'm still alive then, he might have said. There's a couple lines in a Shakespeare sonnet that I think capture it. How like a winter hath my absence been from thee, the pleasure of the fleeting year. What freezings have I felt? What dark days seen? Paul had experienced a friendship with Timothy that brought the redeeming grace of God more firmly in his grasp. He learned what Proverbs 27.9 means. The sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So here's a passage about the presence of friends, but even more important, it's about the presence of Jesus. And Paul presents an experience that he went through where he was isolated. And there are times when you don't have people around you, no matter how much you need them. And Paul had that experience in his imprisonment in Rome. It was an experience that went beyond loneliness. It was abandonment. And he wrote to Timothy about the experience. It must have been that there was a sort of preliminary pre-trial hearing that Paul had to appear at. It was something that we infer from what he says, at my first defense. Well, there must have been an opportunity for any friend or advocate of the apostle to be with him in the situation where he was hauled into court. He must have been standing before the authorities. It would have been possible to have someone on his side stand with him. There's no doubt something significant about the word stand. When you're brought before the trial authorities, you have to stand up in front of them. You're in plain view. You are exposed. They're looking at you. They're judging over you. People who had been with Paul in less demanding situations did not show up at his first defense. He says, all deserted me. 
And in a situation where he was left standing all alone, the Lord stood by him, strengthening him. Now, ask yourself, what was threatening Paul at his first defense? I don't think it was the legal threat before him. That is, the threat that he'd be condemned by the Roman authorities. It seems that he has already concluded he will be condemned. He's accepted that, and he knows he will be executed. There was another mortal threat that was hovering over the apostle. He compares it to the lion's mouth. Now, you could say the lion's mouth, that must represent the fangs of the state that could be bared and bite into you as the state comes down on you with its condemnation. But the image of the lion is much better understood as a picture of the demonic power that is lurking at times behind the power of the state, growling, threatening, menacing jaws with sharp teeth and inhuman power are images of the devil's legion. And it's that that Paul was feeling. Now, we can be certain in examining this passage what the temptation was that Paul was threatened with. And we know what it was because he tells us how God delivered him, in verse 17, that the message might be fully proclaimed. He must have felt the temptation to collapse in his soul at the power of the authority arrayed against him. I can relate. He must have felt a failure of nerve that could cause him not to be bold, as he often asks people to pray for boldness. The demonic threat would be to shrink back, to lose all nerve, to be silent, and not to preach Christ. Can you imagine the devil creeping up to Paul, sneering at him? Look at you, the devil could say, standing there all by yourself, worse than a nobody. How can anybody like you to have anything to say to these noble men of Rome, these people who have the real power, the real authority, the real dignity, unlike you, who stand here at their mercy, a common criminal. Maybe that's the sort of words the devil shot like flaming arrows into the apostle's soul, and he felt it, but he was delivered. The Lord's presence, what Paul describes as standing by him, helped Paul escape the demonic power that would silence him. And instead, the message was fully proclaimed. Paul must have preached at his defense. We don't know exactly what he said, but we have a record in the book of Acts of Paul standing before the authorities on a couple of other occasions. And I think that gives us a good picture of what he might have said. When he spoke to King Agrippa, in Acts 26, the king was amazed at Paul's boldness 
and using the opportunity to preach to him instead of to defend himself against his imprisonment. And Agrippa said, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul answers, I would to God that not only you, but also everyone who is standing here this day might become such as I am, except these chains. Does it sound like he lost his nerve then? Not at all. Or consider his defense before a governor named Felix. Luke writes, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you, in Acts 24. Felix, the governor, the judge, was afraid. He couldn't take the pressure of what the prisoner was saying in his presence. Paul talked about faith in Jesus Christ, and Felix, not Paul, lost his composure. We can assume that Paul took the opportunity at his first defense in Rome to preach about Jesus and the resurrection. His calling as an apostle to the Gentiles was fully accomplished. The gospel was making it to the ends of the earth already. The promises about the nations hearing of the Messiah were coming true. He was able to join with the powers of the age to come, strengthened by the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ to proclaim Jesus. Jesus was with him, standing with him in crisis. Now, there are times, such as when Paul was in Corinth, when Jesus actually appeared to him. That's what we're told in Acts 18.9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. There's no indication in 2 Timothy of the Lord appearing in that sort of way. It's something much more indefinite. I think that what lies behind this, that Jesus stood by him, is that he came to Paul through the word. And I base that on this little reference to the lion's mouth in verse 17. Taking that as a pointer to another passage of scripture that was on Paul's mind as he told Timothy about his deliverance. Now, the main elements of what was going on here when you get this detail about the lion's mouth, these four items. Paul was deserted by friends. There was a demonic threat. There was deliverance so that proclamation was made to the Gentiles. And then there was a picture of the reign of the suffering and risen king when Paul says the Lord stood 
by me. To me, this is a shorthand for Paul saying, I stood there on trial and I thought of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is that psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross. You read through Psalm 22 and you find these four things that are in Paul's second letter to, the, to, to Timothy. Abandonment. Look at verse 11 of Psalm 22. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Demonic threat. I am poor, uh, many bulls encompass me, in verse 12. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. A climax to the threat that was before the Christ on the cross. But as he suffered, there was victory. You get down to verse 22, and now it's all praise. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And there is an announcement of the spread of the message of redemption. In verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Maybe Paul was meditating on Psalm 22 as he stood on trial. Or maybe when he got back to his prison cell after he experienced this deliverance, he realized how the Lord's presence and what the Lord went through as described in the 22nd Psalm, it was all right there in what Paul experienced. He understood the risen and reigning Christ was with him. When he was abandoned by people, he was not abandoned by Christ. Now, I wonder if Timothy picked all of this up. Maybe he had learned about Psalm 22 and what it really meant as a meditation of the suffering Messiah. Maybe he had learned that from Paul. Or maybe he would have instantly recognized what Paul was saying would point him to the 22nd Psalm and what Jesus went through as the ultimate encouragement for us when we were in trouble. However it happened, this is meant to encourage Timothy that when all abandon him, Jesus will not. This little passage, this little letter, encourages you and me to nourish friendships in the gospel. When Jesus talked with Peter after his resurrection to restore the relationship Peter had so broken by his denial of Jesus, he asked, Peter, do you love me? How would Peter show that love? The Lord's answer was, feed my sheep. As you pour your life into the people of Jesus, you at the same time are growing and nurturing your relationship with Christ. And you will find as you pour your life 
into gospel friendships, Jesus will be near you in your greatest need. Maybe you're here just beginning a relationship with Jesus, maybe just seeking him. Maybe a friend invited you to come here. My word for you is that Jesus doesn't offer you health and wealth. He doesn't offer you success or acceptance in this world, but he does offer friendship, a whole new world of friendship that's more like a family than the best of families in this world. And he offers himself to you as a friend who will know you through and through, will know every dark place in your heart and soul, and yet accept you, welcome you, and embrace you as his, a friend who will never leave you. This is the Christ who offers himself to all who hear about him. And the promise is that those who are bound to Jesus by faith will find that he is with them when they stand in greatest need. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you for the rich promises of your presence that you give to us so freely in your word. We thank you that we're not left to ourselves in taking in what you say, but your Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and opens our hearts and renews us. We pray that you would be doing that today. In our lives, we pray that you'd be making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.